You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I'm James Kreppi and he is Aaron Fentress. And we are uh, taking a look back at the Alamo Bowl and the conclusion of the 2021 Oregon football season. Getting a little bit of an assessment of things entering the offseason at this point. uh, As Dan Lanning and his newly assembled staff uh, will get together here in the not-too-distant future. Lanning, of course, still wrapping up uh, his Duties and responsibilities at Georgia as defensive coordinator as they compete for a national championship in just under a week from now. Uh, and we'll see how that goes. But also, again, we'll take an assessment of the final game of the season for the Ducks. Uh, what was good, what was bad, where things stand in terms of, like I say, in the really in the big picture, entering the offseason, uh, personnel moves, coaching moves, you name it. And we'll get into as much of it as we can here. Uh, and this kind of not just bowl recap, but really kind of a season recap of sorts uh, here. But we'll start with the the bowl game in particular, which uh, at this point is nearly a week ago, uh, just because it was such a some mid midweek game uh, and a little bit unusual in that yeah. circumstance. But be that as it may, uh, your thoughts on the big picture, Aaron, of uh, a Alamo Bowl loss, uh, but a game a game that was just, we knew was going to be a bit odd going into it. Uh, insofar as both teams had significant numbers of opt-outs, both teams were led by interim head coaches. Uh, and then, of course, while we were in San Antonio, saw just the additional players that the Ducks would be without. So it was, I'm not sure how many people were expecting a 47-32 game, uh, albeit in a loss necessarily. At the same time, quite honestly, I'm not sure how many people weren't either. Uh, I'm not sure how many people, what people really were expecting. Uh, I had said going into the game uh, in the couple of days before, I was uh, on a couple of different radio interviews, particularly uh, in Oklahoma and Tulsa and Oklahoma City and stuff. And when we got further clarity as to just the extent of absences uh, from Oregon's defense specifically, I said to anyone who would listen in Oklahoma, I just said, look, if Oklahoma doesn't score over 30 points, it's a problem. You know, if, yeah. if basically, I'm just telling. I was telling their their fan base, their audience, their listeners. I'm going. If if the sheer, I'm just looking at the numbers. It's not about talent. Don't misunderstand me. Um, I'm just looking at the numbers and going. I have no idea how a defense is this depleted is going to be able to contain an offense that was pretty explosive for the most part in the season in the first place. And then when you like I say, when you take a defense and take away, in terms of when you go back to the season opener. Oregon was without, it was about 13 or 14 guys who were on there too deep on defense. 
to start the season. And there's no defense in the country that if you remove 13 or 14 of the top 22, 24 players is going to come out the other side perfectly unscathed. Uh, there's going to be some significant drop-off um, just in terms of caliber of play. But your thoughts on, as I say, uh, the game in and of itself and what, if any, greater meaning it may or may not even have, again, given that there's personnel changes, coaching changes, and everything else. Yeah, I mean, the first half was not surprising at all. I, I thought Oregon would do a little bit better offensively in the first half. They actually moved the ball pretty decently, but they couldn't get points. Um, but I was really kind of surprised that they were able to get rolling in the, in the second half, and it was almost like a big, giant last-second tease by Brown to be throwing <laughs> all these deep balls and receivers scoring all these touchdowns left and right. All these things that people complain about all season, like, we don't throw the ball downfield. Where's our vertical stretch? And then here they are just launching these deep passes and making all these spectacular catches downfield and roasting people in the secondary. So it was really bizarre in that regard. But it was good to see Brown, you know, end well at least. Uh, but they had no answer for Oklahoma's offense for the, many of the reasons you said. So, yeah, I mean, it was kind of bizarre in how it – they happened, but the final result was pretty much what I expected. Defensively, obviously, it's not a good performance, but at the same time, who and what exactly do you criticize? Because, again, what was – and I'm not, not – again, not knocking the players who were out there um, and, and giving it a go, but ultimately, just the sheer volume of players who were without. And then in the second half, early in the second half, no less, you know, an already depleted unit loses three more players early in the third quarter and you just go like oh for the love i mean there's just i mean how much it was it literally got to a point of you're going like quite literally how much worse can this get from a just from a personnel availability standpoint uh yeah. you know just the sheer volume of starters who were unavailable was unfathomable uh i mean literally i mean i, I know i think in bowl season there's only i think there's gonna end, only end up being like two other teams who approach the sheer volume of absences and uh, unavailability as Oregon did. Was it like around 30? When you get into the practical sense, you know, there may have been one or two guys who suited up and I'm not even getting into the quarterback position where you say like, Oh, well they were all there, but you only play one. No, no, I'm I'm getting more into guys who may have suited up, but there was just no way in the world they were playing. Uh, or they had redshirted and not played all season, and they may have been in uniform, but they were absolutely not playing and making their season debut in the Alamo Bowl uh, at that right. point. They were effective when you brought into the second half, and Sewell and Manning and uh, Damon David went down. They were without, I think, I believe it was 38 guys out of the 88 that started the season. So they were down to effectively. It was close to 50, but really close to like 48, I think it was, in terms of scholarship players. In terms of bowl game availability, the only teams who were going to approach that, from my understanding so far, I've not tracked every bowl game, but the ones that you heard the most extremes, are LSU, which plays today and mm-hmm. also has about 45 scholarship players available, and Virginia Tech, which had its doors blown off in the most lopsided ACC bowl loss of all time, also because of lack of availability of players. That's what's happened. And again, we'll see what happens with, with LSU's bowl game. But point is, is teams who are stretched that thin, and by the way, both those other teams also had interim head coaches for other reasons. So the fact that they went out there and defensively had a, a tough go, hardly a surprise. The fact that they went out there and fought in the second half when they got down as badly as they did, uh, I thought spoke well as a whole of 
the players in the room, of frankly the coaches, uh, all of whom stayed to finish out the season, because at halftime and you're looking at a thirty to three deficit. I mean, guys could have left right then. Everybody could have. Everybody could have absolutely folded. <laughs> Coaches up the could have snuck out the back. <laughs> everybody could have folded up the tent and said, "Forget it." Now, yeah, to, in terms of, <laughs> I realized that for the offense, that because of how maligned uh, it was throughout the course of the season, particularly in the final month and a half, uh, in particular, but especially the passing game, I realized that being down four scores and throwing multiple deep throws and connecting on them suddenly became a source for (laughs) the confirmation uh, that some people were seeking that, oh, you see, this was, this was always the plan. Uh, If if only we don't, if only we gotten down four touchdowns in every game, we could have seen this every week. And it was because of, of big, bad, mean, evil Mario Cristobal that it never happened. Uh, so for those who wanted it, you got it. Um, they forgot the circumstance that caused it in the first place, but right. okay. Uh, and then again, further confirmation, obviously, and in in, even for those who understand the tongue in cheek I'm getting at here, that yeah, the, the young receivers are very talented. Uh, and that at their peak, at their best, that they made obviously some very nice plays in the second half to make it a more competitive game. And to give Oregon a real chance. Uh, now that's it. They never had the ball with a chance to tie in the second half. They did get the ball in a two-score game with the, whatever it was, about six and a half or so minutes to go. But they were in the shadow of their own goalposts. And when they went three and out, and that was that. But they put up fight. They provided some explosive plays. They, you know, they made some big moments. So for that, there's a lot to be said there. And I realized that, unfortunately, with that, uh, some of the players involved will be moving on, so you can't even necessarily draw a lot by way of conclusions from it. But as a whole, yeah, and I was not surprised in the least uh, that Oklahoma was able to put up a whole bunch of points because, again, it was just – I don't care what team we're talking about. If you take away that many players from a defense, you're just going to be stretched to beyond breaking points. And they were. They were. Now, allowing points on eight straight drives, does it have to look like that? I don't know if it has to, but it did. And again, I'm not all that surprised by it. Um, because again, they were, they were just without so many important players. Uh, so Kennedy Brooks has a big day and Caleb Williams has a big day and they connected on several big, big plays. Sure. But early on, it was particularly in the first half. It really was a, to me, very, very similar feel to the Utah games. And not so much from a physically dominating standpoint, but more from a Oregon got behind. It dug themselves into holes with some uh, lack of execution and shooting itself in the foot, penalties, interception, whatever. The interception wasn't even necessarily the big issue. Uh, but the lack of execution and then the big plays that Oklahoma hit on the ground and in the air uh, to just further its own cause there at that point, it, it snowballed badly, very badly. But it, I, I don't draw any bigger conclusions from it. I don't. I, I thought I think of all years, particularly given the circumstances for Oregon in this game, and for Oklahoma for that matter, that this bowl game was a self-standing entity unto itself from the entire season. 
that it was the final piece of the 2021 season. I think it has no bearing whatsoever on the 2022 season. And I think it also has little to no connection to the regular season because of all these circumstances, because of who was available and who wasn't, because of interim head coaches, because of you name it. I I thought on both sides that this was just a a one-off event and spectacle that neither side is going to be able to draw any conclusion from one way or the other. And now Oklahoma's dealing with a, with, a quarter, with a quarterback transfer potentially. So, you know, it just – It was just something that happened. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, it, it, they gave you a fight. They gave you a little bit of entertainment uh, at the end there. But beyond that, uh, yeah, I, I – it was it was a weird we we realized it was a weird month it was a weird month capped off with a weird game yeah. and and that was just the way it goes so in a strange final month of the season it you know i i would say it was almost apropos to have such a a bizarre uh, sort of finish to things but having said that again i i thought it spoke well of the room as a whole that Oregon did put up the fight. That's not silver linings. It's not moral victories. It's not consolation prizes. It's not any of that. But when you get down thirty to three again, it could have, it could have ballooned, very, yeah. very badly. Well, yeah, you're down thirty to three with all the the situ all the um, variables that you just mentioned. It'd be extremely easy to pack it in. <laughs> I mean, like you said, most of the defenses was out to begin with, and now guys are the stars are falling like flies. If I'm on that defense, I'm looking around, I'm seeing more and more guys are falling out. Like, what's my incentive? Offensively, you're getting you're getting rolled. Where, you know, where's the incentive really to come out in the second half when you're down 30 to 3 and play like they did? The only incentive is that everyone on that roster showed heart and showed yeah. competitiveness and showed desire to not be embarrassed, you know, and and to go out there and play better football. And they did. And there's something to be said about that. Like yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you lost, but you didn't lose with your tail between your legs, and you could have, you know, had they lost, like, had that game ended sixty-seven to seventeen, I, I don't think we would be sitting here necessarily bashing anybody. <laughs> It'd be like, no, well, got, know, away from, got away from, got away from you, got worse. Yeah. It's a meaningless game. You got all the problems you have. Yeah, just snowballed from there, and that was that. But. It was the exact opposite. Yeah. They won the second half. Again, like I say, <laughs> you know, if, they won the second if half. If you want examples so. of, of how games can get away and how ro- roster, you know, depleted rosters can really get ugly, like I say, just queue up the pinstripe bowl and not that anybody should be. Um, but, you know, a Vodtech Maryland game that it's like, you got to be kidding and, and played in outdoor cold conditions, the whole rest. And, Bottom line, you know, again, a Virginia, a depleted Virginia Tech team with an interim coach and the whole dude just got absolutely just decimated earlier that same day on the 29th. Just got railroaded uh, in historic fashion. Uh, and then even with their new coach, uh, Brent Pry, going on, uh, you know, for a uh, uh, interview on camera during the course of the game, talking about the style of defense they're going to play and whatnot in the very next play, Maryland hits like a 50-some-odd yard touchdown. <laughs> you know, in the course of him talking about how they're going to play a certain brand of defense, defense, and they give up like a whatever it was, like a 50 or 70 yard touchdown pass. So, yeah. Whoops. Again, if you want to, if you want to see what, what, you know, truly what, what bad to ugly can look like in that kind of setting, 
Uh, again, you need to look no further than just only a couple of hours earlier in a different bowl game elsewhere. Uh, so again, I, in terms of any sort of takeaways from it uh, in the big picture, I'm with you. I take it more about the collective fight and effort uh, more than anything. And secondly, uh, again, if you want to really talk about projecting into the next year, the things that are there that are the most positive are the young receivers because those guys are coming back. That's not a, you don't have to worry about, well, is there draft or what have you? These are true freshmen. So Thornton and Franklin, again, obviously had really, really uh, nice second halves combined for each had four catches, each had a touchdown. That, that was kind of the output that, Many were hoping for. Many were even, you know, expecting well, at different points of the season. Hold on a second. Before we shift yeah. completely receivers, I do have to ask you one thing on the defense. So we agree that they were depleted. There was injuries. There was opt-outs, et cetera, et cetera. Are, are you saying then you have no concerns at all going into next season? Oh, no, no, no. Don't, don't misunderstand you're, you're, me. Don't misunderstand me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> but, so let's, let's talk about that first sure. before we get to sure, the season. Because sure, sure. I'm curious what – I got into some little mini Twitter debates about this, but from my, like, I, I'll give the defense all the excuses in the world for guys being out of that game, but the guys who are out of that game, most of them are not playing, are not coming back next season. So what, so a lot of the young guys who played sh- at least show your depth behind whatever guys were injured who are going to be back next season. And the fact of the matter is you're losing Kayvon, you're losing Wright, you're losing Verone. And overall, your defense ranks 79th in the nation in total defense, 75th in points allowed. That's a lot of holes to fill. And, yeah, we shouldn't pick on them for Oklahoma, but they still gave up 600 yards almost of offense in that game. And even during the regular season, the defense was spotty at times, especially against Ohio State, UCLA, et cetera. And it was a pretty weak conference, as we all know. So, like, defensively, where do you think this is? this team is moving forward uh, with the players on the roster who you know are going to fill in certain spots, with healthy guys coming back, where do you think they sit going into 2022? Defensively, I think there are going to be major, and I mean major, improvements just from a scheme standpoint. Major. I there is I, I will bet any sum of money you wish. Any sum, damn. Any okay, sum. let's go. That, let's that, go. Let me get, let me they, get my account over here. That they will not rank <laughs> as poorly on third down defense as they did this season. That they will not get absolutely run roughshod on against twelve personnel as they did this season. <laughs> You're probably going to be in Lanny's office with him, making sure he works on that, right? And it's just there's just certain things that occurred this season that there's no way that they, it's literally one of those that you just say there's only one direction to go. That's how that's how dire it was on third down defense. I mean, when you look at the splits, it's it, forget about statistical anomalies. These these are things that are truly inexplicable. It it is beyond illogical the splits that they were having on third down in favorable positions. Not to saying, oh, you got the third down. But I'm not talking about third and one to three. I'm talking about third and medium and third and long. There were some statistical splits that you beyond head scratching. It's inexplicable. There's only one direction for them to go. So there, there's no way that Oregon's defense is going to repeat. Or the kind of statistical 
like I say, rankings that it had in certain categories, in certain areas. Now, again, there are certain things in terms of replacing personnel. You mentioned, obviously, yeah, replacing Kayvon Thibodeau. Well, nobody just turns around and does that. You know, they're not going to be able to just simply replace him with one individual. Uh, that's the ultimate attempt to replace someone in the aggregate. But that's college football. That's going to have to happen for them. That's going to happen for Michigan. And what they have to replace with Aiden Hutchinson. And they're probably going to be the top two players in the NFL draft, uh, each of them. So you know, one order or the other. So bottom line, that's that's part of the game. That's part of the sport. Uh, and also let's remember that Thibodeau, unanimous All-American and all, missed – well, let's put the bowl game aside. Of the 13 regular season games, he basically missed four games. When you factor in the second half of the first game, the following two games, the first half of the Cal game, you know, and then if who's you know in and out of various different other points, missed three or four games. And that's not knocking him. That's, I'm talking about just, just, just reality. So when you consider... Uh, yeah, the Arizona game where he played 10 snaps. So bottom line, yeah, he basically missed four games. They're, they're replacing a lot of the production that he brought to the field. And he's a all-world player. But he was an all-world player who missed one-third of the season. So as dominating as he was when he was on the field, and he was, uh, they don't have to replace a guy who was there every single game. They would already gone about trying to replace him. And they do have a roster with talent at that position as a whole on the edge. At the caliber of KT? No, not yet. Not yet, no. And and I'm not saying that Braden Spinson is going to be a top three NFL draft pick in his future either. But I'm also telling you that I think his potential is there that he could be a first-round player. I do. I, I think he very well could be. He's got all the measurables to do it. He's played well, but... It's going to be a different dynamic, you know, again, for him without Thibodeau. Obviously, Sewell's back. Justin Flo is back. Uh, the secondary loses four starters. That's significant. It, you know, Verone had, obviously, a spectacular final season. But it goes beyond him. It goes beyond him and Mike Hale. Uh, you know, Jordan Happel completes his eligibility, and DJ James goes in the transfer portal. And, yeah, you take four guys out of the secondary and Thibodeau off the edge. That's a lot. That's a lot. But it is, at the same time, that is also college football. Losing in any a top team, a top 10, top 15 caliber team, is probably going to lose about half of its starting personnel in a given season, in a given offseason. It's the way it's kind of supposed to be. So losing five or six starters... Quite honestly, yeah, that's that's about right. But that said, do they have some depth at those spots? Uh, at a couple of them, a couple of them. But are they going to have either look to add via the portal or or finish it out via the recruiting side or what have you? Yeah, probably, probably. But that's what we've got. You know, eight months to to review and assess and go over and, and see what landing and the staff do via, like I say, at this various different points of the off season from recruiting out of the high school ranks or the portal or what have you. But defensively, again, I think there are just certain areas that they quite literally only have one direction to go because I th- and I think they'll get there in part for no other reason than schematic changes, I think will lead to so better what, results. So what do you think Lanning is going to do that's going to change that? Change well, I think they're going to go, I, I think they're going to go obviously in shift. Uh, Lanning more is more of a three, four 
base 3-4 front. They were really more of a base 4-3. I know they were kind of going off in, in between between three down linemen and four down linemen, but they were really a base four-man front, whether KT was upright or and he was upright for, for the most part all season. Um, or if it was a two-down front with him and Funa on the edges, one way or another, they were a four-man front. Somehow, some way, whether it was four down or three down and one up, whatever. It was four, for the most part, other than the extremes where, yes, they would play five when they played Washington or a couple of the 12 personnel, the one 12 personnel team they actually did well against. Um, the, <laughs> the difference is that Lanning is a three down, a three, four base, whereby the surface is minimum four, but more often than not five. And that's part of the difference. Uh, and again, when you go with that and you say, all right, well, if you're going to be a nickel anyway, what does that start to look like? And um, so I think there's certain schematic changes. And then with that, the personnel, it's going to uh, have to either be moved around or um, or not forget about just who's brought in. Just looking at the nickel spot alone. You know, Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill didn't play together very much at all this season. They didn't really have much of an opportunity to. And when they did, it was mainly when Bennett had taken over the starting role and then Jamal was in there in a rotational basis and they both stayed at nickel. Well, if you're going to keep both of them on the field. Oh, and by the way, Jeff Bossa moved from nickel to the weak side backer spot. Well, if you have Flo and you have Sewell, and you have LaDuke, and you have Brown at the inside backer, and you have those three guys at nickel in particular, well, somewhere, somehow, you either need to move somebody back to deep safety, or you've got great depth in a rotation at the nickel spot, but we're talking about three players who are playing basically as starters at the same position this season. So I think there's just going to be some personnel adjustments and position adjustments at minimum. Uh, along with the scheme that will probably lead to uh, well not just probably will lead to differences in results regardless of who else is brought in regardless of transfers regardless of what have you uh, that there'll be just some changes there so and I, I think that'll be a big part of it but that just speaks to again certain specific circumstances we're talking about third down or uh, certain schematic matchups but I'm not going to begin to project here on the first week in January what their final we demand it. Yeah, what their no, final numbers are going to look like against like past defense as a whole, or what they're going to rank in total yards or scoring. It's like, come all on. right, we'll no, give no. you to Mars to come up with that stuff. Yeah. All right, so, so let's, get back, let's get back to the receivers. Uh, so man, Franklin, Thornton, Hudson, they look nice. Yeah, again, yeah, this, it, when, like you talked about all the depletions everywhere. I mean, the receiver position, my lord. Devin Williams gone, Pittman quit, Red Johnson out. Those are your top four receivers coming into the season, pretty much for most of the season, right? But you know, yeah, were some injuries and things like that. But and then you got three newbies, youngins out there killing it in that game. Is that a sign that hey, this position's fine? Or still, you know, Mario alluded during the season, and so did Moorhead, that some of those young receivers were making young mistakes that. Sometimes we're blamed, you know, on Brown. So there is some youth there to things that, you know, mature and route running and things like that. But physically, man, the, the, the skills are there. I said before the season started. You did. At a, at a practice. Um, 
I was talking to somebody. No, oh, not you talking about here. And they, they, somebody had asked me. Uh, doesn't matter who. Don't worry about it. Um, somebody, <laughs> somebody asked me what I thought of the receiver position. This is back in August, and I literally said at the time, I go, "Well, is the basically is the uh, preference going to be is the favorability going to be about experience for Johnny and Jalen and Mike and those guys, but particular, or on upside potential and you know, top end peak peak talent and ability. Yeah. Basically. No, we talked about that here too. I remember this conversation. Yeah. But point is is I, I basically you know, I, I turned the question into a question. I you know, I, I responded to a question with a question was basically like, well, which way are you gonna favor? Um because in essence the way I saw it then was like oh I I saw it you, you it was impossible not to see. And again we saw seen uh, Franklin and Thornton during uh, spring practice for that matter. We saw you know, Brevard was the one to show up in the summer. I thought highly by way of their skill sets the whole time. In terms of, you know, yeah, if in the ideal situation, what they could do, sure. But what you don't know on every given Saturday along the way was, yeah, what about, like you're talking about, execution, aptitude, knowledge of the playbook, uh, route running, and ability to go out, and especially since the nickname that they've been, uh, you know, basically, at the, I honestly couldn't even tell you where it came from, if they came up with it themselves or if it was fan-driven. But bottom line, when the nickname for him is the Skinnies, <laughs> well, you know, it's catchy. It makes for a nice hashtag. But, you know, the other part of the position is blocking. Right. And they're bigger guys. Uh, and, again, with a ton of athletic ability. But when they are going to be – Going to be, were, are a run centric offense. Blocking is another big part of the job. And, you know, when you're lean as true freshmen, right? That's, you know, they're up against it. And again, they were up against it from a uh, experience standpoint when you have a couple of, you know, super seniors at the position and Johnny and J Red, who frankly were playing well at different points in the season, Johnny in particular. Played well and far and away, not even close. Far and away, the best two perimeter blockers on the team. I mean, not, it, it's not even. Th- th- there's no argument to be had. So when they are doing the quote unquote, you know, veteran right things to do, and producing, uh, and consistent and reliable, it, yeah, you can understand. Yeah, do Franklin and Thornton in particular. And by the way, this isn't a knock on Brevard. We just didn't see him very much, you know, during the season, but. Do those two have probably the higher upside potential by way of, you know, future prospects for the NFL or what have you? Sure. And I said, again, I said in August, I'm not not fighting the, you know, to the contrary. But point is, is, but it's still college football. They're not there yet. There still is development. There still is growth. There still is uh, strength and conditioning and, and gaining of size and speed that occurs over the course of two and three years to get you there. That one day, you hope. So we'll see what happens in the offseason in terms of how they fill out their frames. Do they add some weight? What does that look like? Uh, and what have you. So as a whole, reason for confidence about those two in particular? Absolutely. But again, I thought there was reason for confidence about them 
five months ago. That's not really the issue. To me, the issue is still at the receiver position as a whole, as a collective. Easy to rattle off the box score from this game. Harder thing to do is to, you know, really sit down on paper and go, how many scholarship receivers are coming back? Uh, you know, talented as a couple of these guys are, and they are very talented. This room doesn't have the number of bodies that it needs to get through a season. Not even close. How many do they have? Uh, it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's more than four, right? It's very lean. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it's pretty close. Um, to be honest, when you start looking at next year, if, if presuming that Stefan Johnson, who is going to take another official visit, uh, thanks to the change in uh, coaching staff, he gets to do that and he'll be doing that in about, uh, not this weekend. I think it's the weekend after in the middle of January. Uh, presuming that he ends up signing, they have eight scholarship receivers on paper for next year. That includes Lance Willoyt, who has been away from the program all season, same as J.J. Greenfield at uh, Jared Greenfield at safety. They were two players who were away from the program all year. I can't speak to their status one way or the other going forward, but they were all you know is they were away from the program. And it includes Josh Delgado, who spent the entire season on scout team, did not play all year. I can't, I honestly don't even know if he made the trip to the Alamo Bowl. I didn't see him. Didn't see him at practice. And on one hand, it was like, well, it was practice. He may have been on with the scout team there. If he was wearing one of the other things, it was hard to recognize. Didn't see him on the sideline at the Alamo Bowl. And he spent, again, he spent the whole season on scout. As a, we're not talking about a freshman. We're talking about a true, so- well, true, a, a sophomore who was doing that. Uh, who redshirted, and I believe was the only player who fit that criterion at all. So, and I, you know, I don't speculate about what players are going to choose to do, move on, transfer, what have you. I'm saying I'm just recounting two players who did not contribute in that group. Right. That's eight with a signee and two guys who didn't contribute. It could very quickly get to six or less. Uh, you know, that, that can happen very, very quickly. So that's why I say they do not have the depth of the position to enter the 2022 season right now. They don't. They have is, to go is out Bo and gonna, is, is Bo Nix going to bring his uh, pal from Auburn that you wrote about? Well, well, well I tweeted off that, you know, that, that he happened to join <laughs> oh, you the tweeted, portal. sorry. Uh, right. But just, uh, just, just in that, I, I saw his uh, uh, yeah. mentioning that he was going to be entering the portal and also that he mentioned uh, that Kobe Hudson were referring to the Auburn receiver, the leading uh, Auburn receiver this past season. Also mentioned and then deleted after he mentioned it. Uh, that he was kicked off the team. Kicked off the team. So that yeah. was a nice, uh, a nice note. Yeah. By the way, I'm leaving. Oh yeah. By the way, I was also kicked off the team. I, got, I, I don't want to tell you why, and uh, forget I ever mentioned it. Don't worry about it. Go, oh, okay. Well, that's that's good. Um, look, they were pers- they're clearly pursuing receivers in the transfer portal. They were pursuing Jacob Cowling from uh, UTEP, who ended up going to Arizona. So they know and recognize that they have to add at the position. How many? We'll see. Uh, in my own view, uh, by way of just numbers, again, not getting into talent or depth or who you want to compete and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just numbers of the position in terms of scholarship structure of a roster. You, generally speaking, want to have no less than nine. If you're going to run a base 11 offense, you want no less than nine receiver, scholarship receivers. And 
if you're going to run base 11 and you have the ability to run base 10, you really want 10 to 12. Like I say, they're at 8 under the most ideal pie-in-the-sky circumstance. That could be, from a practical standpoint, 6. They have to add bodies. And more, and more than one, plural. They have to add bodies at the position. So that is, to me, offensively, that's the position of greatest need to be addressed this entire offseason. So, yeah, so reason for confidence about Franklin and Thornton, sure. And, right. and again, I, I'm not mentioning Hudson here in the whole conversation, but we saw him all season. We saw more from the freshman in this particular game. Um, but in terms of the position group as a whole, you know, for games eight, nine months from now, they have to add depth. They absolutely have to. There's just no way around it. Again, they're, they're, and they're trying to. So it's not like you know they're they're not denying it uh, institutionally. They're going out and pursuing transfers at the position because they have to add that. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. So they lost the quarterback. Robbie Ashford's out. I think. It was clear, pretty clear that one of the three youngsters were probably going to move along, especially with Bo Nix coming in. Uh, so I imagine you weren't very surprised it was Robbie, or did you think it might have been Jay instead? Or it still could be Jay. Who knows what he's going to do? But it seemed to me Robbie would be a logical choice. I, the only thing, I, the only reason why I thought maybe he might stay is that, you know, he's a damn good baseball player, but he can play baseball anywhere. Right? So I don't know if that really matters. Yeah, I, I for one, um, again, I don't publicly – get into the speculation aspect because it doesn't it doesn't serve anybody doing that. Um, if, if I start speculating about how many players could transfer, who the players are who could transfer, and it doesn't happen, then what did I do other than just make it about myself and my own thoughts and, and you know, create unnecessary angst and stress for, for an 18 to 23-year-old making their own life decisions? Um, so that's that's why I just don't go there. So after decisions are made or what have you, or after if I can confirm things that are in the works, you know, before it necessarily gets out there, sure, then I'll go about reporting it. But um, was I surprised with the news yesterday? No. No, because to your point, because they – I think in the big picture of the quarterback position during Mario's tenure that the most fair assessment – because those who want to harp on, no one was ever developed. <sighs> All right, look, you're never going to be. You're ne- there's, there's never going to be talking logic to you about what development means. So, be that as it may, the easiest and most truly fair assessment of that position during the four years was there was varying degrees, particularly at the end here, the last year and a half, of mismanagement of the position. Because, and I say mismanagement different than development because they brought in Anthony Brown Jr. when Tyler Shuck had been the heir apparent or certainly the player who was willing to sit behind Justin Herbert when, in an age when sitting behind anybody who is a foregone conclusion starter is hardly in vogue. Tyler Shuck did that. Showed you in a spring game that he's got a little something. And then, in the following spring, led the conference and passing efficiency. Go ahead. 
in the short sample that it was, he did. Um, but in the following spring, and then the pandemic starts, but in the following spring, albeit the couple of practices they had, okay. But did what he did what he did in that time. All right, bring in somebody else. All right, well, it could be create competition, could be whatever. Fine, fine, fine. All right, weren't expecting for the fall to be as screwed up as it was. Sure, okay, maybe a competition in a under ideal circumstances, there was a legitimate competition. Maybe Brown beats him out in the first place, so it's not as chaotic. But then by the end of it, despite a three-game sample that was really good to start off, and then a couple of games that were quite rocky to follow, that was no longer sufficient. Then it became how to get Brown out there. And remember, the same fans who now want to just throw all the dirt in the world on Anthony Brown were the ones clamoring for him to replace oh. Tyler Shuck. All of about I remember. 13 months ago. Um, I so, remember. I had some major I, – I think I blocked like five people that night so, who were like coming at me sideways because I was saying, no, Shuck is the guy. Dude. Anyway, but yes. But there's yeah, it, man. 100%. So, and again, it's the same fans who thought that Marcus Arroyo was the worst offensive coordinator in the history of Oregon football because, because <laughs> a, a 15-pound leaner Justin Herbert mm-hmm. did not run. They got a mobile quarterback with an RPO-based offense under Joe Moorhead. And then getting a mobile quarterback who is one of the top 10 mobile quarterbacks in the country. That was insufficient. That's why he was no good. That's why this offense was terrible. And that's why Mario Cristobal was handcuffing the offense. So again, I, and don't, you know. and back, back to 19 and Herbert. Don't, I never confirmed this, but I felt it was pretty logical that there probably was a wink, wink. Arrangement that they were not going to rush Herbert that much because he didn't have to come back. He could have gone pro and been probably been a first round pick in 2019. Yeah. And he came back and they completely shut down any running whatsoever. So to me, it felt like they're being, and plus, and plus they only had Shuck behind him. So it's not like they had a, a proven guy behind him. So to me, if you felt you could win without him running, why run him? It made no, it made no sense to risk it. But anyway, go ahead. Let's also remember the two other aspects in the entire equation through this entire era. And we'll get back to why I say mismanagement on the quarterback front additionally. Sure. The backfield, the entire four years, included C.J. Verdell and Travis Dye. Verdell ran for 1,000 yards back-to-back seasons and was a Heisman contender at the end of September, by the way, he started this season until yeah, he got hurt see, again. See, and Die goes off for a career fans, season. So, but that doesn't fly with Duck fans because they watch Darren Thomas run I know, with I Michael. Know, and I know, I know. And the offense, so, and the offense that's no longer played in college football. I know. And in, in the bygone <laughs> era, I know. I know. I know. I know. With, with offensive can, linemen who average two hundred and sixty pounds, still, I know. I know. I know. You can still rush the quarterback, regardless but, of any of that, but, and they chose not to, which we, we which we agree was smart. But they had the running backs it was because they had. I don't think it was because they had the running backs. They had running backs to do it. They also had again to the receiver position a lack of either depth and or top end talent to maximize things that they still managed to maximize, in my view, because of what. Dale Mitchell they, did because Verdell, of what Breland they had did. Verdell and Dye, what, they had Verdell and Dye this year, and Brown rushed for a lot of yards and a lot of touchdowns. So that's right. why I don't think that washes. But well, we agree that Herbert should have been running Verdell the ball. Then went down, we, we, yeah. agree, we agree that Herbert shouldn't have been running the football. Right. 
But point is, it didn't, well, I should say it didn't need th- to. Those are some of the things in the context of the greater conversation about the right. quarterback position in the offense for the last four years, which, by the way, I believe of, over, I, I'm going to end up doing the math here for some stuff next week. I believe over the course of the entire four years, the eight, the 18 through 21 seasons that Oregon will have, I believe they are the Pac 12 leader in both total offense and points is particularly points scoring offense over that four year span. So again, for everybody who thought both coordinators were God awful, terrible, and that the offenses were miserable, uh, I, they were either number one or two. I'm going to be doing the final number crunching on, uh, average points over the course of the last four years, but be that as it may, the reason why I say mismanagement at the quarterback position is, all right, you had Herbert, you had those things. Shuck was there. You bring in Brown. Okay, well, it's, it was going to create competition, but competition that may have gone a different way if it weren't for the 2020 screwed up half season on and off. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, by the end of it, you have a Fiesta Bowl that let's just all mutually agree that the manner in which the quarterback position was handled that day was suboptimal. If you want to go with Brown that day, go with them. Go ahead. Fine. Play him. Start him. Let him play the whole game. If you want to make a change, if you're dead set on a change, Play Anthony Brown in the Fiesta Bowl. Clearly, they wanted to. They did. He played the majority of the game. But don't start Tyler Shuck. And then after two possessions, say, oh, no, we're going to go the other way. Then, well, Anthony got something rolling. So we're going to stick with him. But the plan is still going to go back to Tyler. After we somehow, some way, claw all the way out of this hole. And we're rolling to do it. The defense starts making stops against Iowa State. The offense is humming. After it gets humming, we're going to go back to Tyler. And you get, what? Come on. Like, stop. Stop it. Stop it. If you want to make a change, make a change. Brown played most of the second half. That's my point. Right. Right, But the story. And they they scored zero points. But but Mario's story (laughs) that he was sticking to after the game was, oh, no, we were going to go back to Tyler. The plan was always to go back to Tyler. And you go, the plan was to go back to Tyler? You were in a hole. You're saying that the plan, the the ideal world was that after you were dug in a hole, that Anthony was going to go out there and light it up, that your defense was going to make corrections, that you were going to somehow get back in the game, and then you were going to go back to the quarterback who you took out after two possessions where he didn't even do anything wrong. You're like, I, I mean, all right. Again, the day was not handled well. And obviously, all right, it, it, I tweeted it that day. I said, look, this was a quarterback management. This was a game plan brought forth in the era of the transfer portal. All right. Leads to the changes that came this past offseason. Fine. All right. Now so, there's but, additional but, changes. So uh, in terms of then there were then they, now you have three freshmen at the position because of all this tumult. But they but the, you, you skipped over they told Chuck. I was my understanding and I talked to Mario about this later after way after the fact. That they basically told Chuck Brown's the number one quarterback going into the offseason, yeah. and that you can try and catch him if yeah. you want to. So, in in that, I, I was told too that Moorhead was not big on Tyler at all, and right. they kind of wanted Tyler to transfer. And he did. You agree with that? So, and to me, that was just like, okay, if you make that decision, you must know for a fact that Ty that you and, and there's no way they could have known this for a fact because Ty wasn't on campus yet. That you believe Ty is going to be either contend for the starting job or be a definite viable backup to let Shuck walk. Because to me, Shuck's still in the development process. That, that was his first time ever starting. And yes, he had some hiccups, which is not unusual for young quarterbacks to have hiccups. Not at all. 
Joey Harrington had hiccups. Dennis Dixon had hiccups. Darren Thomas had some hiccups. People have hiccups. It doesn't mean you're a bust. But at the very least, had, had you just said it's open competition or Tyler's still our future, but Brown, you can compete. Would Brown have left? Maybe they were scared of him leaving. Either way, the ideal situation was to keep them both. <laughs> so that you had two legit quarterbacks. But the thing was, they, they, they were, they were the, never going to keep op- both. Option. They were never going to be able to keep both. They were not. So you're saying Brown both. would have bailed if he wasn't told you're the guy moving forward? I, by the by, the end of spring practice, had they both stayed, Brown would have bailed one one or the other. They were not making it to the start of this season with both of them. See, where would Brown have gone? Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's speculation. Again, it doesn't matter. My point was at the time, if I had to choose between the two, I'm keeping Shuck. I'm going Shuck Thompson over Brown Thompson just because Shuck is still young and we don't know where he's going to go, whereas we know what Brown is. And again, and you come into this season with Brown, he did a fine, he did an okay job, but had he gotten injured, they, they might have just won six games <laughs> because of how far behind allegedly the youngsters were. So it, yeah, I agree with you. It was, it was mismanaged. It was, it, and I say mismanaged more than, like I say, about a development standpoint, because for one, it, it, the whole point we're making about Shuck and Brown here at the end, it, again, you could, you could argue that if you ever want until you blew in the face, you're never going to be able to prove or disprove because Tyler ends up getting hurt at Texas Tech, which you can't begin to juxtapose right. and, and suppose that that was going to happen somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, unfortunately for him. Two. Um, it's more about, like I say, the scholarship management and, and stacking of the room because no matter what, if this staff all stayed, if Mario stayed, if nothing changed by way of coaching staff, they were going to be dealing with a room with three freshman quarterbacks and then bringing, oh, no, bringing, in, bringing, in, <laughs> bringing in Tanner yeah. Bailey, a fourth freshman quarterback yeah. who would obviously be in line to theoretically redshirt at that point that's the only way you create any kind of stacking at all. And you're like, all right, well, one way or another, there was going to be someone as an odd person out, no matter what happened, no matter who the head coach was, no matter who the offensive coordinator was, there was going to be some changes at the position. Um, so that's why I say more about mismanagement necessarily than I get into the development, not development, because again, okay, that's but, a side. But, that's a from, side a, but from a development standpoint, Oregon had five years to find a quarterback and have someone ready to go and they did not do it. And their quarterback in 2021 was a 2016 Boston college recruit. So that's on Taggart and Mario and all their coordinators and quarterback. But again, I also go back they to, did not, but I go back to, they did not that any, anywhere, anywhere outside presently of Clemson and now the last couple of years, Ohio State, and the last couple of years, Alabama. They're the only ones, only ones, who can say they stacked the room of their own recruits at the quarterback position who were willing to sit behind a premier first-round pick at quarterback for potentially multiple years. Tyler did it in the short term, and then they even ended up moving on anyway. But who sits behind that caliber of a quarterback for multiple years? That's not the way college football operates anymore. We're in a different era. You know, the portal only began in Mario's first year, hey, I, and that was I, the I, end I, of Mario's first year. It really only began in year two, and the one-time transfer just started. So we've changed so much from just the beginning of – the Cristobal era, effectively, in the 18th season, 
Which, oh yeah, the other part of that was that they also only had like 68 scholarship players that year. <laughs> no, no I, I, listen, I, I don't agree. This, no, remember Braxton Burmeister was, was there saying, in, in that year and Burmeister <clears throat> left to go right. to Vatek and by the way, was a starter. At Vatek, but yeah, also but managed to get hurt a lot, unfortunately, because for myriad reasons. All that great as a starter. But no, right. I, everything you're saying, I was saying in 2015-16 when they went and got Vernon Adams and Prucup because Travis Johnson, Terry Wilson, and Mahalik didn't work out. It's just par for the course that you're going to have those hiccups. But back then, a lot of people didn't believe those hiccups were acceptable. It was a, it was just against the rules of nature for Oregon to have to get a transfer. But then here we are five years later and they've had to have a transfer. So I agree with you 100%. It's a crapshoot. Like you're rolling the dice with these guys and you're hoping that if you recruit a, you know, a four star, a five star quarterback every year for five years, that one of them is going to hit. <laughs> and yeah. so one of the things that was amusing to me is that everyone was convinced that Ty Thompson is the man because he had five stars by his name. But it was like, okay, if he's the man and he's going to be the guy for the next four years, then why Tanner Bailey sign? Tanner Bailey didn't sign with Oregon to back up Ty Thompson for four years. He signed because he thought maybe he could beat out Ty Thompson. Why did Ty Thompson sign if Butterfield was the man? Because he thought he could beat out Butterfield. So none of these guys, none of these coaches believe 100% that any of these guys are absolutely the guy. Mario told me twice in personal conversations that Tyler Shuck was the shit. He was the guy. He was going to be the man. And then boom, he was out. <laughs> they blew him out for, for Anthony Brown. So the point being is that the coaches don't even know. They're guessing and hoping. And that's why you keep adding and adding and adding until one pops and you go, Oh, hell, we got a guy. And then other dudes leave. But right now they're at a position where they had no clue with three youngsters. They had to get a transfer and that's sort of where they are. But yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's a crapshoot. And you just gotta just keep adding bodies and you hope someone clicks. And again, there's so nobody, the there's nobody measure, who can say that they have it a hundred percent in that way. Like I say, no, outside of three programs, because LSU, if it was so easy to replace Joe Burrow, then they go and do oh, what happened? Oh, exactly. that didn't work out so well. One guy got hurt. The exactly. other guy actually had a decent season, but then ends up going to the portal and ends up turning about face. If it's so easy for the quarterback whisperer, Dan Mullen to replace guys. Oh, what, ha- what happened down there? Oh, he got exactly. fired. Fired after making it to the SEC <laughs> championship game the year before. Fired and had a six and six well, season. So point is, is you could be successful. You could be known as a quarterback coach, and you could still end up canned off a six and six when the year before it you know was lighting it up. So again, even before Alabama, before Alabama hit the mother load with hurt. I was say before Tua, before the hurts, Tua, Mac Jones, uh, Bryce Young, yeah. Triumph, uh, you know, now quadrant of this whole thing. But they were recruiting Prukop. But but look at who they had before. They had Gardner Minshew they were recruiting. Look, go back to, go, you really want to go back in the Alabama age of of quarterbacks? Not really. I mean, if you want to go, (laughs) AJ McCarron and Greg McElroy and those guys. McCarron's was a very good college quarterback. Right. But point is, it was a Heisman finalist. But point is, is you want to go back, you really want to talk about the quarterback position at those places? The last position, the last position that Alabama got a first round pick in the Nick Saban era was quarterback. The last one. The last one. It took until Tua for him to get a first round pick at quarterback. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. That was the last one. Now, oh, well, now it's what have you done for me lately? And now it's, oh, they're just producing first round picks and we can win in the Heisman every year. <laughs> really? Really? You know, I seem to remember that Nick Saban's been there for 15 years, not five and not five months, 15. So again, it, this whole idea and even the notion that we go to, go to Clemson. Trevor Lawrence. Oh, well, DJ goes from cross country and well, DJ could have come to Oregon. DJ could have come to any number of places, goes all the way to Clemson. Okay. Well, how did he do as a true freshman? 
And here's the thing, and I'm not even knocking him. He actually had, by the end of the season, a solid freshman season. But hey, if it's not All-American and 10 wins, then it's abomination. I don't believe in that, but that's the way that it's viewed these days. So you go, no matter what you do, if you're the freshman who spends one year behind somebody, now it's you're the heir apparent and you got to go out there and you got to win 10 games. And if you don't live up to it, it's what the hell happened. And if you're willing to roll that dice, whatever. And if it's you bring in a transfer to either create competition, all the incentive in the world for the coaches because of the demand to win is to stack the room with the veteran guy every year because you can't ever allow for a fall off. Because like I say, if you fall off, look at Dan Mullen. That's what happens. If you never have the contingency to the contingency, you're out of a job. So the way that the ecosystem of college football is right now is that a step back, even amid change at the quarterback position, even amid seismic change at offense. Again, it wasn't just quarterback that they lost at Florida. They lost a first-round pick at receiver and tight end, too. And they're just like, oh, well, yeah, sorry. You know, his recruiting wasn't strong enough. He had this show cause. He had these other issues. And uh, now we're just going to, you know, again, tar and feather him every which way. And I'm not saying Dan Mullen's a sympathetic figure. He is not in any way. Oregon wanted him badly, too. But, but. Fact is, is that if you were a Pac-12 coach, you wouldn't have been fired one year later. And, you know, it is what it is. Nah, after a 10-win season and winning the division, a 6-6 six and six season would not have been fireable in the, in the Pac-12. It, it wouldn't. But be it as it may. We just saw a coaching staff get fired after going to the national championship game and winning the Heisman two years later. I said that was two years, and that was still in the SEC. I'm saying if Mullen did the same thing no, record-wise. No. Oregon. Oregon fired its coaching staff after going to the national championship game two years later. They were a losing team. In the Pac-12. Uh, losing team. Losing team. Championship game. Right. Anyway. Losing. Okay. So, so point we, is, is we, we agree on, we we agree agree on that whole situation. There what's was your, degrees your, of mismanagement more than I say about development because development to me is, all right, so you mean to tell me that merely well, by showing up and inheriting Justin Herbert, as talented as he is, on tremendous, otherworldly, could be a future NFL Hall of Famer. That, what, he did not improve one iota, that he didn't increase muscle mass, that he didn't do anything in the course of his time with the coaching staff and whatnot during those years. None, none of it happened. I mean, he, just, he, 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 just was kind of, he was kind of better as a true freshman. No, I'm kidding. But here, let me put out one thing about, about Herbert. So I think most people agree that they could have maybe gotten more out of him at Oregon. I think people blow it out of proportion because they see what he's doing in the NFL, ignoring the fact that he was a completely different player to start his rookie season than he was in 2019. He improved a tremendous amount, especially mm-hmm. with his deep ball accuracy and his sideline passes. Mm-hmm. He used to have a lot of sideline passes, sail out of bounds and things like that. Mm-hmm. But here's this stat is a very telling to me because I think it's overblown. Like I think there's a happy medium. I don't think you go all the way to the, my God, Mario and Arroyo are idiots. Look what they could have done with Herbert. Because here's the fact. Herbert in 15 games his rookie season, 31 touchdowns, 10 picks. In 16 games this season, 35 touchdowns, 14 picks. In 14 games with the Ducks, his senior season, his final season, not senior season, 32 touchdowns, only six picks. So in two fewer games than this year so far, he only threw three fewer touchdowns but had eight fewer picks. So the only real difference in statistically between Herbert in 2019 and Herbert in the NFL 
is that he's throwing way more picks and, and for way more yardage. But if you were Oregon and you were trying to maybe protect Herbert from himself in some instances, and you could get this yardage rushing the ball as opposed to having Herbert throw it all over the place, then that's a strategy to employ and you minimize the interceptions. Because the fact of the matter is you can say whatever you want about Herbert and the volume in yards and all this kind of stuff and going downfield, he's throwing a lot of interceptions. And if he throws 15 interceptions, 12 for the rest of his career, you know, it's not going to necessarily sit well in the long term, I don't believe. So I do think that whole situation was overblown because at the very least, they kept him from turning the ball over and still got a ton of touchdowns out of him. He also didn't have Keenan Allen and Mike Williams to throw to. Exactly. He didn't have the same targets. He didn't have guys with a catch radius. He didn't have the guys who could blow the top off the defense. He didn't have those big-ass bodies running around there. I totally agree. That said, I still think they could have gotten more out of him, but it's overblown. And I, you so know, I, I, and I just can't recall who was Keenan Allen's position coach at Cal. I just can't. Okay. Anyway, so um, <coughs> to uh, to some other positions before we bid you adieu here on this edition of the podcast. Uh, obviously, personnel-wise, we mentioned Ashford moving on. Uh, the young receivers coming back. Various other positions coming back. The entire offensive line. Uh, coming back, other than George Moore, who, of course, believe it or not, yes, did actually have to complete his eligibility. Did he uh, finally after finish? Seasons, uh, after seven did seasons. Did he finally yes, finish? It, it, it very much, it really did happen. Uh, yes, Virginia. How many grandkids does he have? Um, he has been around. <laughs> uh, he, he literally was older than the graduate assistant in, in the offensive line room. That's true. He, the, the, that's wild. the star. <laughs> that's you know hey you spent seven years in college yeah that's and that's not hyperbole he really did spend seven years uh so play that as it may so good for him yeah good again him. hey good on him um you know obviously he was a starter for multiple years and everything so uh put in the time uh and and spent a long time playing college football at various different levels so good on him but he moves on but otherwise uh the other five players who are essentially all starters at one point or another uh because of the various rotations they had to play all back. That's tremendous. That's huge. Regardless of who ends up winning the starting quarterback job for next season, uh, having a veteran offensive line in front of you is massive. And that's, that's a major foundational pillar for the offense for next season. Regardless of what happens at the running back position, regardless of who wins the quarterback job, having a, an offensive line that with that much uh, experience, you know, you don't just, you don't just roll out of bed and get that. You don't just replace that. You know, that that has to be procured and developed over the course of time, and they've put in time. Uh, so again, they've they've got skill, they've got experience. Having that there is very very big for the offense. Um, certainly worthy of uh, uh, noting for sure, because again, that's that's humongous uh, for for what this offense could be for next season. No matter again, no matter all the other unknowns, having that known is huge. Uh, then to the coaching staff and what Lanning is assembling. Again, we're still waiting on just the. Let, let me ask you one more, sure, qu- sure. One, one yeah. more question, personnel wise. Do you think Dye is returning? I really don't know. I re- I just really yeah, don't James. know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I I I I believe it one way or the other. If you told me he chooses to move on because he spent four seasons and this is when he was quote unquote supposed to. And he's coming off a tremendous year and he's taking the hits and it's time to get paid. Sure. If you told me he wants to give it one more go because, hey, maybe he can 
add a couple more pounds and uh presumably if Verdell moves on as well which again I, I you know I, I think is probably where that is leaning um I, I can feel a little bit more confident in that projection at least uh that hey as the lead guy the entire season what can that mean I think there's also just some additional conversations about potentially uh loss of value insurance and those sorts of things uh whatever feedback he may have gotten um from he he wouldn't necessarily ask for the NFL feedback because you have to be an underclassman. Again, he's automatically in the draft uh, right now. So Oregon is waiting word on him uh, and three other players on that front. So we'll see. I really don't know. Like I say, I'd believe it either way. I would totally believe it either way. Um, so we'll see. And I'm not sure if we, we may find out an hour from now. We may find out a week from now. Because he has a month to decide. Now, there's no way that he's actually going to take the full month. Let's be clear. Because right. if he if he's choosing to actually move on, you start the training process. And you start that very quickly. You don't, you don't decide to... You don't decide to start training at the beginning of February. So, if he's going to choose to do that... And we'll find out one more, whichever way he's leaning. But he was just back, he was at um, uh, Lambeau Field to watch Troy and the Vikings play Green Bay on uh, Sunday night. Uh, my understanding was that he was going to be hanging out with Troy in uh, Minneapolis, uh, where obviously Troy is finishing out the season with the Vikings this year. He was going to be there this this whole week. Uh, so I'm not sure if we're going to hear from Travis on a decision on that regard. At all this week, we may again. We could find out an hour from now before we even get the podcast published, or it may it go into next week, and that he finishes what he's doing. Landing finishes out his season, gets into Eugene. They have a conversation. Not that a conversation can't happen on the phone, but you know what I'm saying. There, there could just be any number of factors. So, not sure. Uh, I I really just don't know. Uh, I'm not sure which way he's leaning. Uh, and again, I'd spoken to his now fiance uh, for the story right before the uh, bowl game is going about that uh, they got engaged a couple days before Christmas and writing things up and getting her perspective on all that. And I honestly can't even remember what made the final cut of the story or what didn't on, on that front. But at that time she didn't know. She really didn't. Um, and again, would be happy either way, but yeah. she really didn't. So I don't know if I did, I'd report it and say it's done one way or the other, but I, I just don't know. Okay. So, all right. So the, the staff. Now, I, I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I know a little bit about some of these guys because I read about them, but I don't have an opinion on the staff beyond just hey, it's a bunch of guys. More guys are coming in. It seems to have been a three of everything in the last six years because of all the coaching changes. Sure. I assume they're all good coaches. I assume some of them are really good recruiters. Fine. You know, what do you think? <laughs> it's it's the way it goes in in. Anywhere in college football when there's staff changes is you build up and read all the highlights of whoever the new hire is uh, and you try to make that as big and positive as possible. Uh, and very rarely does any hire anywhere get met with great apprehension or angst or negativity. Rarely. It does happen. Uh, just ask Washington and their offensive coordinator. Uh, it does happen. 
There are occasional hires where you just go, I'm sorry, what? None of these guys fit that bill at all. Uh, even for those we go like, oh, well, they're coming off of doing this. So even again, we're waiting on official word on, on a couple, uh, official confirmation on a couple. But again, it's been widely reported that Tosh Lupoy will be DC coming from the Jaguars. Well, are you really judging and assessing what he did with the Jaguars this season? Really? Yes. Really? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Like, there's, there's certain things that just. They're, people they're were not, judging. People were judging other people about what they did in certain seasons. So why not him too? Well, it, they got the receivers coach from Washington. How many passes those guys even catch? It's just more analogous. The coordinator averaged twenty five points for Florida State. Wow, big whoop. Well, I mean, the point on. is, is well, we mentioned a Junior <laughs> Adams. Well, Junior Adams in the job that you have, I'm being facetious people. In the, I'm jo- being facetious, in the job you have, you bring in the talent. But if you weren't calling the plays and they're running a hey. 12 and 13 personnel offense running the ball as much as they were and a quarterback position that was uh, struggling, uh, there's, you know, you can bring in all the top end receivers you want, but if the guy throwing him the ball and the offense is not engineered to necessarily be throwing the ball very well. And by the way, what happened to those two offensive coordinators that were there while Adams was the receivers coach at Washington? Uh, so, you know, Maybe it wasn't necessarily the receivers coach's problem, uh, necessarily. Uh, just, just pointing that one out. Um, now again, with Dillingham, well, he also walked into a Florida State roster, uh, that was in, um, shambles, uh, when they arrived. So more than just a one, a one year sample or a two year oh, sample. But, but, what they, wait, 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 wait. Taggart arrived to a situation that, that was, was worse. And he, worse. Didn't, he didn't yeah. get a benefit of the doubt. He, he got, he got fired, but Dillingham and, and Norvell got the benefit of the doubt. I wonder how that worked. I, I, Pretty interesting. I anyway, don't. I, okay, so I don't, like I don't begin to. I don't begin to <laughs> uh, uh, get into all all of how Florida State managed things the last four or five years. I'm saying that their their roster since the end of the Jimbo era has been just in tatters because of the way that things ended. It was trending down. Yeah, Jimbo off left a it cliff. In a it it, it fell off really bad, and nobody, whoever was taking over for him, was going to able be able to find success. It's within so one good or two to years. hear someone say that. It's so now good to hear that doesn't excuse that anything because I didn't sit there and analyze every move and transaction that ever occurred uh, under Taggart during his time in Tallahassee. But that there was a dire situation inherited. Now, in terms of every which decision thereafter, I'm not here to relive all that and relitigate that, and nobody listening cares. I know. But the point we're is, not, we're not going down. But, but I'm just, glad, I'm just glad you said it. I, I will be assessing, again, as I already mentioned earlier, about statistically certain things, with next week being the national championship game, and then after that, obviously, then Landon gets back here and what have you. But I'll, to put a bow on everything, be doing a very 30,000 foot big picture total era assessment of the crystal ball era Ooh. of the positions of the statistics Ooh. of Ooh. how do you as judge and assess the coaching staff out and now the co- to your point the coaching staff coming in because some of them we may not get official word Lupoy one in particular until the NFL season's over on Sunday anyway so how do you judge and assess the assistance at the college level to me to me because they don't control, they're not the GM in the NFL. They don't get to hire and fire and pay contracts and do those things. That's not their job. So in the NFL, it's they pay them, you play them, that's it. The, the, the development is minimal. 
at the collegiate level, what is the situation you inherited by way of, by way of what was the room? What was this caliber of talent? If you walked into a situation where there were two first rounders at your position, receiver, corner, a line, whatever, did you develop them into that or were they already on third base and then you just got them across the finish line? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause they'll get to write on their resume for forever that they coached a first round pick, but did you mm-hmm. or did you? All right. Was the talent Same acquisition with, yeah. or was it the talent finality? Like, what was like the, with Herbert. To, to varying points. But point is, is like right. who gets the credit for every which step of the way? So point is, is right. it takes time to actually assess all of that. And that goes again by every which position, by coordinators, by coaches, by what have you. So we'll do that at the end of the crystal ball era. And we'll do that into the beginning of the landing era in terms of what all of these hires wow, bring. That's going to be a hell of a project. Well, for one reason or another, like we, a have, ten parter? Uh, we, we have time uh, at the moment. Is that going to be a 10 parter? I, I, I hope it's not a 10 parter. <laughs> it may it's take 10 sittings for some Potter. people to get through, um, but, uh, but I hope it's not a 10 parter. But, but bottom line, um, no, to, to really assess, like I say, fairly everybody, uh, involved because, uh, you know, t- to me, that's, that's the only way you can really be fair to, to position coaches in particular at the collegiate level because, to be fair to point is uh, we'll leave it on this at the receiver position specifically. Talk about what McLennan inherited at the receiver position and what he, you know, and how much the room improved to your point to bring kind of full circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the young receivers and the promise that they're showing. Can you imagine, can you imagine if in the middle of the pandemic, when getting people to visit campus was basically impossible, if McClendon didn't land these three freshmen, can you imagine what the room would look like? Again, we're already talking about the numbers that they are. Can you imagine if they didn't actually land the receivers they got a year ago? And again, that they were supposed to and were in line to do this year. And then, all right, then the changes happen and it's gone the way it has. But point is, you think it's just easy given what the prior three, four, five years was at the position? When you're recruiting on the recruiting trail and everybody's going to negative recruit against you for one reason or another and because of, oh, well, this is their numbers and this is our numbers. You think that was an easy job? So, again, I think that McLennan, by way of talent acquisition, was otherworldly in his couple of years here. And it had to be. Because without it, it would have been disaster. So that's just an example along the way of pointing out, like I say, certain positions during the course of the Cristobal era. But again, we'll get into it with the new guys as well about what they've done in their careers to really, what have they brought in? What have they had go out? What have they, you know, again, from the recruiting perspective, because again, especially the guys who were most recently in the NFL, well, they didn't have some of that. Most recently, most recently, obviously Clem and Lupo have been recruiters before, but not, you know, in the last two, three years. Uh, it's been before that. So, Again, we'll take kind of a 30,000-foot assessment of all that. Lastly, uh, last bit here, to the portal and uh, the just it, – it, we've gone from the coaching carousel to now the quarterback carousel, uh, or as my buddy uh, Ross Dellinger at Sports Illustrated, I believe, uh, tagged it, the uh, quarterback shuffle. And that is what this is now becoming. You know, the, the portal, when it began, was – the thought was it would be for players who were – Lower down on rosters, either trying to find landing spots elsewhere, perhaps transfer down, perhaps the guys at the 
uh, FCS level or the group of five level to try and transfer up. And for a little while, we saw that. But now with the one-time transfer in place, now it is wide open. And I'm not knocking it. That's the reality. Adjust uh, the line for Moneyball. Adapt or die. (laughs) So, all right, here we are. But Caleb Williams is in there. We'll see what he ends up doing. But among the many, Oregon brought in Bo Nix. Half the SEC starting quarterbacks have gone in the portal. Your thoughts on the era that we now are in in college football, Aaron, that it's not just the quarterback position to be clear, but this is I know. It's, the world that we are it's, in. Look, it always was unfair to me. Like if you have a player who's a backup and clearly he's not going to start. And even if the program, yeah, we'd like you to stay, but if you want to leave, that's cool. And that kid transfers, he had to set out a year. That never made any sense to me because it was like if there was a mutual agreement that he probably wasn't going to be in line to start, but he had football left in it, could maybe start somewhere else. He could transfer, but he had to set out a season. So you eliminated that so that kid could go find another place to play. But the fact that we're having starters and now even a superstar, potential superstar college quarterback basically looking for something better, it's just it's just wild. Could you imagine in the NFL if you drafted guys in the first round and they started and had a great season, they made the Pro Bowl, and then they're like, yeah, I think I want out? Like, you would never allow that in a professional sports setting. Cause we know is different, but you're, Caleb Williams is showing the way for guys who are instant stars to then say, you know what? I think I might want to leave. Who's going to give me a better deal? Because when you factor in the NILs, now you're talking how, about how money can be in play. So Caleb Williams can stand out there right now and say, who's got the best NIL deal for me? If Texas says, dude, we can give you a deal with this car dealership for 400K. And the USC says, no, we got you 600K. And Oregon steps in and says, we can give you the Jordan brand. It's a billion dollars. <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. Now you're literally going to have p- players play. I mean, Kayvon, his freshman year, could have done the same thing. You know, in this current system. Hey, I was I had two and a half sacks in the Pac-12 title game. Look at me. Who wants me? Who's got the most money? And so I think it's going to be horrible for college football. I think it's good in a lot of different ways for kids to have options. But I, I think... Like college football to me right now is already at at the the beginning stages of just absolute chaos and madness. And I believe the NCAA has to figure out a way to reel this back in or it's just going to get psychotic. I mean, dude, the, the, the Gilbert kid goes from South Florida or Central Florida to UCLA. Caleb announces he's in the portal, but he might go back to Oklahoma. But then the, the, the Central Florida kid goes to Oklahoma. Now, is he going there because he thinks Williams is coming back? Is Williams not going to go to USC? And then, then Dart's going to go to UCLA? Like, it's just madness. It's chaos. And I have, I have no <laughs> problem like, with anyway. And? You know, yeah, and? <laughs> You're like, and? Okay. Like, I, all right. Cool. I'm like, the like, house is on fire. And you're like, eh, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, like, you know what? The, le- the leverage was always lied with the institution and the coach before. Funny what happens when the shoe's on the other foot. I know. And it's, you know, it's and not by the surprising. Way, the it's idea plus, that it's free agency plus. every year and that, and that a player could do this in perpetuity, it's one time transfer. No, no. And then if they no, do it I as know, a graduate, but if you're, if you're a first round pick quarterback, you're not doing this multiple times. You're doing it once. If no, you no, even I'm leave. Saying, I'm not saying one player is going to do it all, all, all no, the No, there are time. some who are. I'm you are. That. There are some who are saying, oh, this guy's just going to oh. do this every year. It's like, no, they're not. Oh, the rule no, doesn't allow for yeah, it. Yeah. And if you're a first-round yeah, player, no. you're not doing it multiple times because if you're a first-round player, you're going to leave and go. 
So that's a whole nother. And by the way, right. we've been doing it in college basketball. So let's not act like this is this like holy grail that this threshold we're crossing that is just unconscionable. We can't possibly fathom what in the world this looks like. It's called college basketball. Now, for those who would say, well, they oh, went well, pro though. They went pro. We're not talking about going to another program. Yeah, in college basketball, you got guys playing for four schools in five years. It's happening right now. Star players. Define I'm star. Talking, I'm th- well, Leading Williams, scorer like, versus all conference player or or I know, future but like, N- like, NBA okay, like, lottery. Like Oregon, Oregon gets transfers a lot. We see, but they're not getting guys who are necessarily like first round picks or even second round picks, and they're not getting guys that they're, the school they're leaving is like just dying that they're leaving. Caleb Williams is a different animal. Like this is bizarre, and he may not is, leave. He went in, but okay, he may so not then, leave. We'll see. Okay, so why we'll did they? So why did they now? But why did they go get uh, Dylan Gabriel? Gabriel, sorry, yeah, Dylan Gabriel. I keep want to call him Dilbert for whatever reason. Because <laughs> why they go get he, him then? He played for Levy, uh, right? So, but, in his career. but would he? But would he go to Oklahoma if he thought Caleb was coming back? And if he did, he's a moron, right? Perfectly fine question to ask. I mean, that, that's what I don't know. It's just I, I think I think there has to be a, a way to create a happy medium. Otherwise, I just think like, how could you, how could you even run a program knowing that, okay, I recruited this quarterback and he's really good. Oh, he wants to leave now. Damn. Okay. Okay. Now I got to go find, or even other positions. Like at some point, the program has to be protected in terms of how it builds itself into a, it is. Yeah. It's not anymore, though. That's the whole thing. There's no, there's nothing stopping guys from bailing right. after having but why, success. But to your point, but why would they want to? They could say, oh, if it's only about money, if that's it. And I'm not even supposing that Caleb Williams is a money thing, by the way. But if it is, hypothetically, in the future, the mythical future entity in this, who does this. So the free market's a bad thing now? Okay. Yes. I'm fo- All right. So if somebody can leverage it to themselves, so now the player can leverage it, it's a bad thing. But when the coach does it, it's okay. Or when the AD does it, it's okay. Or when the president I'm does not it, it's saying okay. The, or, I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying right. the coach does like, it necessarily, I, it's I'm, okay. I have I no issue. Do it. I have, I, like, the institution is protected in that the other part is, is if it's if it's not purely money or money is negligible, lo and behold, maybe you just treat your people better. Yeah, Maybe just you know more okay. normal. Okay, but, but okay, but hold on a second. The most Ill- fundamentally illogical and untrustworthy demographic in our country, which is why they have the highest car insurance rates, mm-hmm. are and the biggest egos and all that testosterone are not going to make wise decisions very often, and and they're being guided by mostly clueless and ignorant parents. And in many times, if their kids are stars and been treated like gods all their life, they honestly think that they're basically the street agent for their kid. Like, there's just going to be some really bad decisions made. And it's going to create, like, for instance, like I tweeted the other day, don't, you know, I've always said, don't fall in love with your coach. Coach worship to me, it's just bizarre. But now, don't even fall in love with your star players because they can leave on you too. And so if you have a situation where guys are just bailing left and right who are really good players, it creates a situation that's really difficult to build a program that way. And it's just, I don't think it's going to be good for college football in the long run. Just, that's just me personally. Like yeah. it's already a turnoff to me. Um, but no problem. I don't know. again, to me, 
There's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. It just. It's a, <laughs> there's gonna, I it's, think there's going to be some adapt, rule. There's going to be some rule. Adapt or die. There, there's going to be some rule tweaking, man. Just, there is. Well, until they want to make happen. it labor law, and then there's a union, and then they're employees, and then we're off to the races. So, I, and that's you know what, mm. and that's probably where it needs to go anyway. Because I, how can you? That will we'll, like th- that, that, that'll be I'm a whole Oklahoma, separate podcast. That but we would. But we'd one, be more, one more point though, if I'm Oklahoma, and dude enters enters the transfer portal, he's got to go. I Why? don't want him back. Why? 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 Because I wouldn't trust him. I don't trust him. Why are you, why are you, you just had a great season. You're our starting quarterback. Why are you trying to test the waters after your freshman year? Is he doing anything not allowed by the rules? It's a, it's a, he didn't create the system. He's operating by the system. I understand. I'm not saying he should go to jail for his decision. I'm just saying that my feeling is going to be like, there's okay, a coaching well, staff change. He, he's looking out for him. And if he wants to move on, he moves on. And if he doesn't, no, no matter no matter how no matter how people want to, to frame it and phrase it, there is a difference. I do think think between coaching staff and players. The players are on scholarship. You know. Anyway, uh, we'll yeah, say we go all day. Guys, Bottom line, wrong. but I just it's I a think, different I think, era. I think it's, it's a just, different era in age in college just, football. And uh, again, there will be transactions all over the place. Um, this one being a prominent one, but uh, again, Oregon's they need to create minor league football. Yeah, it's time for minor league football. But we will definitely get into more on the personnel front and the coaching front and any number of things Ducks related in the future. Appreciate you for listening. As always, make sure if you don't already subscribe to the Ducks Confidential Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to give us a five star review, like, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so that way more people can find it. And we will see you on the next edition, which, uh, honestly, I'm not sure when we're, uh, when we're going to fire it up again. Probably not in the too distant future, but with it, now that we're in the off season, uh, it may be a little signing bit less day? After signing day, maybe? It'll be, like I say, it's probably not going to be weekly exactly, but we'll, we'll figure it out. After, we'll it maybe after, uh, Caleb Williams comes to Oregon and Nick's oh, and Ty God, Thompson yeah, yeah. transfer, we'll and have then, an emergency. Now podcast. we really got to end because now Aaron just, just, just gave you a whole level of, uh, on that note, we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>